This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. Yes, I still think it's the greatest nation on God's green earth. I don't think our politics is the greatest on God's green earth. I, In fact, um, by any standards, if in any kind, I don't think our politics is the greatest in the Western Hemisphere, for goodness sake. Oh, where are we? What happened? How did we get to this place? Uh, David Frum is not just a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's not only a prolific author of multiple bestsellers, He's also a historian. He wrote the definitive book on the uh, politics of the 1970s, which was actually looked down on. It was a period of Watergate. It was a period of great polarization. Uh, There were a number of political rascals and disappointments. Uh, David, from uh, it is a pleasure to speak to you, first of all. But uh, would you... Would you compare the 1970s to what we're going through right now and say that the 70s, the political situation in this country was really worse than it is at this moment? Well, we have the advantage of having the past to learn from. You know, people in the 1970s were baffled by the problem of of inflation. Um, It was just something so out of their experience. Well, uh, those of us of a certain age can remember it. And everyone else can read about it. Travails of the moment are going to, I, I think there's a lot of evidence they're already improving. And I think they will continue to get improved. So I'm, I'm an optimist on that score. Well, I'm glad to hear that. What about the political choices? I mean, the 1970s gave rise to a choice between Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan in 1980. Uh, don't both those guys look like a substantial, substantive uh people of good conscience and decency compared to some of the political operators we have today? And let's not forget Gerald Ford, by the way. Yes, by um, the way, right. Uh, uh, very impressive person. You know, one of the great injustices of history is that Ford is remembered as this clumsy blunderer when he was, in fact, one of the greatest athletes ever to be president. I, I remember as a boy um, being very struck by a picture of Gerald Ford taking a tumble down a ski hill. And it was only years later that I learned why he had taken a tumble down the ski hill, because this man in his 60s was skiing with the U.S. women's Olympic team. And he discovered when they rounded a corner, he couldn't quite keep up with the U.S. Olympic women's Olympic ski team. You know, I'm a, I am ski. I don't think I could keep up with them either. Right. And, uh, and, and President Ford was a, an all-American football player uh, for University exactly. of uh, Michigan before he went to Yale Law School. And he was also no, no idiot, as he was so right. frequently ridiculed. Uh, you, your piece fascinates me that you, you wrote recently for Atlantic. Uh, Biden laid the trap. Trump yeah. walked into it. Uh, what's the trap that uh, Joe Biden set for Donald Trump? Um, so the Republican strategy going into the, the 2022 cycle was uh, talk about the genuine troubles of the country. Talk about inflation. Talk about crime. Uh, talk about gasoline prices. Talk about things. Talk about the things that hit people where they live. Um, maybe they're not all the fault of the incumbent president, but the incumbent president that 
takes the blame. So just run against Biden on those issues, crime, inflation, gas prices, whack, 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 and, uh, and is very traditional. That's a good strategy for the party of the non-president. And the one thing that Republicans were all agreed on is don't run on Trump. Um, he is uh, more Americans dislike Trump than like him. Uh, and just just stay away from that whole subject. Keep him out of the race. Kevin McCarthy pleaded with Donald Trump not to declare his 2024 candidacy, if he were going to do that, before the 2022 elections. Trump in the sack. That was the Republican strategy. Biden learned from that. Obviously, his strategy is to get Trump into the game. So how do you do that? Because Trump had been pretty discreet, uh, unusually for him, uh, uh, until about a month ago. So Biden said, well, first, the Mar-a-Lago um, search and the discovery of these documents, that puts Trump in the news. But Biden then went to a state where Trump had two candidates, the governor, candidate for governor and the candidate for senator who were close to him. And, and Biden went there and attacked Trump by name. And what did he notice? What did he know in advance that Trump would have to react and would, would, would react in a huge way, very emotionally? And when he did, that made Trump the topic. And that's what Biden wants and what Republicans don't want. Well, isn't the whole uh, debate about what was found at Mar-a-Lago, doesn't that also play a very big role in putting Trump back as the center of attention? And right. the one thing that struck me, David, is that I wrote a piece about this more than a month ago, that what uh, both sides wanted, what both Trump's side and Biden's side, is they wanted Trump to be the center of attention. Biden wants Trump to be the center of attention because it's a lot easier than defending his own record. And Trump wants to be the center of attention because, well, because he's Trump. That's that, that's yeah. his animating right. principle, right? Right. So, so often in politics, this is a three, you know, Americans are used to thinking politics is a two-sided game, D's and R's, red and blue. But it's often a three-sided or four-sided game. And um, that, you know, Mitch, you know, I think it's genuinely possible that Mitch McConnell dislikes Donald Trump more than Joe Biden dislikes Donald Trump. <laughs> and certainly that Mitch McConnell's interests are more in conflict with Joe, with Donald Trump's than Joe Biden's are. You know, it, it's a little bit like a, like a sports, a sports thing where, you know, Biden has, uh, you know, in the other league, he's got a team that he wants to see win the games to get into the playoffs because he knows he can beat that team. And everybody else in the opposing league wants to stop that vulnerable team from advancing. Um, and so, so you, you get what you, you get. And Biden's prevailed, I think. I mean, part of it, maybe he was always going to, maybe he didn't have to act. Maybe Trump just would not agree to be sidelined. But in May and June of this year, it looked like in April, even more, when the gas prices were about at their peak, I guess they were peak between April and June. It really looked like the Republicans would successfully sideline Trump and run an, uh, an, an election on cost of living issues. Uh, who do you think is um, uh, going to be the Republican nominee in 2024? If, if his health permits, it will be Donald Trump. You say that without any hesitation. I say that without any hesitation. And I, I would have been more hesitant about three months ago. Um, but I think one of the things that came out of the Mar-a-Lago raid um, was that Trump was able to get Ron DeSantis to knuckle under to him. Um, you know, DeSantis had an option of simply DeSantis had an option of simply not commenting. You know, this is a legal matter; it's before the courts, or just just don't comment. And DeSantis is very good at not commenting on things he doesn't want to comment on. He has not said on the Ukraine-Russia war. Uh, this, DeSantis is a candidate for president. This is the most urgent foreign policy issue in the world. He said nothing about it. 
even he said nothing even when in the the day before the Russian attack on Ukraine there were 200 American troops in Ukraine training Ukrainian troops or two days before those troops were Florida National Guard so DeSantis if he wanted to weigh in had a, a good you know without being overstepping the role of a governor he could have greeted the returning Florida National Guard he could have said something to them he said he's been silent he can do that when he wants to but on Mar-a-Lago he spoke out and I realized once he, and he would have spoken out because obviously he doesn't wish Trump well he wants Trump beaten Trump he could not escape it. And you realize, okay, he recognizes that Trump is the more powerful and popular person in the Republican world. Okay, so there's a contradiction, I think, between what David Frum said earlier in the interview and what you just have made clear. But I want to get to that and more coming up on the MedVed Show. Speechwriter and aide for President George W. Bush. He has been a, a courageous and um, brilliant voice on American politics and recent American history for a long time. And uh, he is now a staff writer at The Atlantic, where his regular contributions are indispensable. Some of them posted at our website at michaelmedved.com. Uh, David, I mentioned that there appeared to be a little bit of a contradiction in our previous talk uh, in the previous segment, where at the very beginning of the segment, you said, look, the, the truth of the matter is that there are more people in the United States who dislike President Trump, who uh, would, would welcome his retirement from politics. There are more people who take that position than people who are his strong supporters. And yet you believe that with no hesitation at all, he is the most likely Republican nominee. How does that work? Because obviously there's smart people in the Republican Party, uh, some very, very smart people who might look at this and say that, okay, right now there are more Americans who dislike and distrust President Trump even than dislike and distrust President Biden. So why would he be such a uh, um, unstoppable force for the Republican nomination? And by the way, even with the continuing uh, pursuit of uh, President Trump by the Justice Department, or does that actually help him? Because in the olden days, when presidential candidates were picked by five or 12 um, powerful people, you know, the head of the AFL, the Democratic Party, the head of the AFL-CIO would, would meet with a governor, the mayor of Chicago, and they all get in a room and they say, who is the one who's likeliest to win? And the Republicans would have their own version of that. Who is the one? That's not how modern presidential candidates are picked anymore. Um, they're picked by quite big numbers of people, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of passionately committed Republicans and Democrats who get their news in selected ways, and that's true on both sides, and don't always know. Republican, I think that the Republican primary voter believes that Donald Trump is hugely popular. 
thinks it's fake news that Donald Trump is unpopular, thinks it's fake news that actually he won 8 million fewer votes in 2020 than, than Joe Biden did. So if you, if you don't believe that the guy's unpopular, you can't take defensive action against his unpopularity. Um, Biden is in a different thing. I mean, everyone, Donald Trump is a person, everyone has a strong opinion about him, pro or con. Uh, there are very few people who are meh about Donald Trump. There are lots of people who are meh about Joe Biden. Um, and so when you talk about people strong, I, I don't know how many people strongly dislike him and Joe Biden. I don't know how many people strongly like Joe Biden. Most Americans, I think, have a, a view that he's there somewhere in the middle on him. And that's both his weakness, but also his superpower, that he's kind of a, eh, he'll do, candidate. So what do, you, what do you think happens on the Democratic side? If Trump is the Republican nominee, you think, regardless of uh, uh, how things proceed regarding the, the, yeah. the still missing top secret documents and the revelations today from the Washington Post about those documents having to do with a uh, foreign country's nuclear capabilities. Yeah. Uh, okay, with, with all of that, who do the uh, Democrats put up to run against Donald Trump? Well, the same caveat, and I want to say this not in a kind of censorious or mocking way, but in a compassionate and understanding way, because this is the fate of all humanity. On the Democratic side, health is also an issue and maybe an even bigger issue than the Republican side. Um, but I, I think that if Joe Biden feels able and wants to and is able to seek a second term, um, I, I think his party has really no option other than him. Um, because, uh, I mean, if they, they, there's no mechanism to force him out. And if they do force him out, there's really no mechanism to force both him and his vice president out. And every poll shows that the vice president is less popular than the president. So when Democrats fantasize or journalists fantasize about some alternative ticket, you have to fact fantasize about a mechanism to force out both an incumbent president and an incumbent vice president without a scandal, but just because you don't like their poll numbers. Um, I, I don't think that's doable. So the Democratic choices are, number one, Biden, if his health permits. If not Biden, it's going to be Vice President Harris. And, and, and if it's not Vice President Harris, it's a bloodbath on the Democratic side. Because, you know, one of the things, you know, we've both been married a long time. One of the things you learn in a marriage is it's very important to fight in a constructive and not a destructive way. <laughs> and, 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 and Democrats, they don't, so you say, okay, Democrats, you're going to have a fight, but you're not allowed to use the words racist or sexist or homophobic. Go. Well, then they're tongue-tied. They don't know what to say. Okay, so so again, what if uh, what if Biden, who I do think has some patriotic instincts, if uh, Biden says and recognizes that his own health is a problem, uh, what if he basically persuades? Well, I guess it'd be kind of tough to persuade Kamala Harris to join with him. In stepping yeah, aside, and what's your for that reason? Yeah, go ahead. And for that reason, he won't. And one more thing, and we both spend a lot of time around politicians. And one of the ways that politicians are different from other people is they don't they are even less realistic about their health than the rest of us are. I mean, and we all <laughs> we are all pretty unreal unrealistic about our health. But the, do you remember in 1992 when um, the Democrats had this big fight between Bill Clinton and Paul Tsongas in Massachusetts? And Paul Songus was the governor of Massachusetts. He was diagnosed with cancer, and he and people said, and he just recovered, or he just had went into remission. And people said, you know, not we love you, Paul, but it's not 
feasible. This is not – don't be ridiculous, I'm cured. And in 1992, you didn't get cured of cancer the way you can be now. But in those days, you, and he, he ran and he did well. And then he, Bill Clinton beat him. And then six months later, uh, he, I think, or six or nine months later, he died of cancer because he absolutely refused to admit his mortality. Um, and I think I've, I've been around a lot of politicians. They just don't reckon. That's why you don't get into the NFL if you don't, if you're not a little differently organized in your brain from other people. And top politicians are optimistic. They are believers, they can do, and they do not acknowledge their own weaknesses, no matter how real those weaknesses are. And uh, no matter how elderly they are, the, pre the President Biden is 79. President Trump is 76. Um, and Nancy Pelosi is 82. Mitch McConnell is 82. Uh, what Would you have expected, would you have predicted 10 years ago that we would have this gerontocracy dominating American political life. At least we'll have, uh, for many years to come, uh, David Frum commenting on it. You can read some of his latest material at michaelmedved.com. Meanwhile, there's Gavin Newsom, who increasingly sounds like, at least according to many people, a Democratic presidential possibility. Uh, how's he handling the electricity crisis in California? We'll get to that. thinking about one of those points that um, was just made by David Frum in our conversation moments ago. And it's so true and it's so relevant to one of the very most important Senate races uh, that's occurring in this country right now, Senate race in Pennsylvania between John Fetterman, who, who honest to goodness, has not even begun to fully recover from his stroke and is turning down debates and in his only public addresses, and there aren't many of them, is speaking haltingly. The, the point that David makes about politicians in particular not recognizing their own mortality and their own, uh, their own health challenges, it's, it's very relevant to that race. And, and John Fetterman is not, I mean, John Fetterman was a candidate I, I would strong, he's way over to the left, and I strongly oppose him. And obviously in Mehmet Oz, uh, the uh, Dr. Oz on the, on the other side, has his flaws. But for goodness sake, uh, at least he should be able to serve out his term. And, uh, and by the way, I, I, I do hope that, uh, that, that particular battle in, in Pennsylvania goes in the Republican direction because it will help to determine which party controls the U.S. Senate. Now, with all of this questions about mortality and uh, recognizing your own limitations, obviously, if you're even considering running for president as opposed to even just a governor or a senator, then there has to be such a tremendous... Uh, sense of uh, your own pride and your own capacity 
and your own uh, vaulting ego. And that is certainly the case with the governor of California, Gavin Newsom. And uh, California's a grid operator, and there is this, has just issued a level three energy emergency alert. That's the highest category. The California Independent System Operator says that uh, this means that they are unable to meet energy demand and rolling blackouts either uh, are either imminent or they're in progress. I mean, this is a very serious matter. And, and they're dealing with uh, consecutive days of, of uh, temperatures in the Sacramento area of 114 do you even, can you even imagine what 114 feels like when you go outside? And, uh, and, and Governor Newsom is uh, telling people to turn down their thermostats. No, uh, really, what do you mean turn down your thermostat? Is, uh, it's actually, pardon me, it's to turn it up. It means to make your air conditioning less so that you won't black out and people won't die because it is simply too hot out there. And this is, by the way, it's uh, particularly risky for small children, infants, for elderly people. Uh, here is uh, what Governor Newsom sounded like talking about these potential outages. This in the midst of all of his efforts to get rid of uh, traditional sources of energy. Uh, clip one. California and many other western states are experiencing simply unprecedented temperatures. In fact, this heat wave is on track to be both the hottest and the longest on record for the state and many parts of the west for the month of September. Californians, you've stepped up to help in a big way to keep the lights on so far. But we're heading, we're heading to the worst part of this heat wave, and the risk for outages is real and it's immediate. These triple-digit temperatures throughout much of our state are, are leading, not surprisingly, to record demand on the energy grid. Everyone has to do their part to help step up for just a few more days. Individuals, the state, industries, business, all doing their part to help reduce strain on the grid. Now here's specifically what you can do in the early morning hours, particularly tomorrow and the next day or so, pre-cool your home. Run your air conditioning earlier in the day when more power is available. And we encourage you to close your windows and blinds to keep your home cool as well. And today and tomorrow afternoon after 4 p.m., in particular 4 p.m., please turn your thermostat up to 78 degrees or higher and avoid to the extent possible using any really large appliances. Californians, you've rallied before, and we can do it again. Keep it up. Okay, Jeremy, what are really large appliances? A refrigerator? Yeah, I mean, how do you avoid using a refrigerator? Right. You, you avoid a stove? Uh, I mean, yeah, I guess you don't need a stove. You just put anything out there on the pavement, and boo, it'll cook right up. But, uh, and no, Governor Newsom, I... I uh, Californians who stepped up helped in a big way to keep the lights on so far. Uh, th does this speak well to his inspiring leadership? The RNC released a, a very short video on social media. It puts together the energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, former governor of uh, Michigan, and puts together her recent comments that California is in the lead on energy 
and can show the rest of the nation just how it's done. Puts that together with news from California. Listen, clip eight. California is in the lead, can show the rest of the nation how it is done. Warning just coming in from CalISO, who runs the power grid in the state. They say they expect demand for electricity to outpace supply tomorrow. And they say that means rolling blackouts are likely. You are asked to set your thermostat to 78 degrees or higher, avoid using major appliances, and turn off all unnecessary lights. California is in the lead, can show the rest of the nation how it is done. Okay, California, how it is done. And, and by the way, think about this. It, the $100 billion they have invested so far in, well, you know it, the bullet train, the high-speed rail, <laughs> that will will never be finished. I mean, it will never be completed. But given the level of difficulty and and one of the things that i'm afraid that the left is going to use with all this is saying well if you want to get rid of 114 degree temperatures uh what you need to do is follow some more of these alternate sources of energy and uh fewer greenhouse gases this is not the kind of thing this explosion of heat and consistent heat like this which, by the way, also greatly increases your chance of uh, brush fires and forest fires of every kind. There are very few good sides to this. And uh, it, it even leads to, there's um, a writer in Israel whose uh, name was Sherwin Pomerantz, who uh, wrote a piece asking whether the United States was actually being punished and receiving our own equivalent of the 10 plagues that were uh, visited on, on Egypt. Do we have some, uh, some slaves that we have to release, or, or what exactly does the United States do? Uh, there are, are questions here that are profound and are difficult. And uh, one of them, of course, is, is how you improve some of those aspects uh, right away with with uh, that can can make some difference in terms of providing electricity one of those uh, changes has to be has to be to follow the example of now other countries in europe and uh, begin to to actually take seriously nuclear power and I, the fact that they are working to try to protect the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear power plant in Ukraine, we need uh, a lot of those safe nuclear power plants here. Uh, John Kerry says we have to treat the climate crisis like a war. Does that mean a draft? Bombing raid? What? We'll get to it on the MedMed Show. Summertime, and a lot of Americans get more active. And when you get more active... Michael Medved show one of the aspects of the current heat wave heat dome they're calling it just as they called it a heat dome up here in the Pacific Northwest last year 
when we had some very, very hot days. Thank God we're um, more fortunate this summer. But uh, uh, John Kerry uh, continues to talk as if nothing is happening here in terms of a shortage of electricity. This, of course, a, a real problem in Europe. It's exacerbated by the problems with Russia and Russian supplies of uh, of oil and natural gas and fossil fuels in general. But uh, John Kerry, our climate czar, yeah, he's still in that position with uh, his friend Joe Biden. He said this about the perspective on the climate crisis. Listen. Over the next weeks, as we go to Sharm el-Sheikh, as we come together in New York, we must agree to accelerate the provision of funding, the sharing of technology, the targets that we're setting in our countries have to grow. We've, we've got to treat this like a war. I mean, literally mobilizing every facet of our economy to deal with it. And I am, I'm not an alarmist. I'm not a Cassandra on this. I believe we can deal with it. We can win the battle, but only if we make the choices we need to make now and, and build our response. Okay. Um, the most important thing in responding is building a pragmatic uh, consensus and agenda. And again, with so many competing needs and perspectives out there, the, the idea that in California now, and to be followed by a whole series of other states, the fact that they are going to ban the sale of uh, new gas-powered cars, and what they're talking about doing that by 2030, uh, that, that means that it's uh, supposed to affect uh, the, the kind of uh, purchase that you make now. By the way, I, I wonder if that would work that after 2030, would you be allowed to buy used cars that still eat gas? And uh, the idea about building the available power stations for all the electric cars that are supposed to be coming on uh, to line and purchased, uh, all of that, it seems to me, happens to ignore what is a much more immediate problem to many people, which is crime. And CNN, right, not a conservative network by any means, though it's trying apparently to be a little bit more moderate and balanced, but CNN reports on the rise in crime in the first six months of this year. Uh, listen, uh, this is clip four. Aubrey has jumped 19%, but the story in different cities, specifically in different neighborhoods, is all over the map. In Los Angeles, murders hit a 15-year high in the first six months of the year. In Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, shootings have spiked to record highs, climbing hundreds of lives. While 100 miles to the north, New York City has seen murders and shootings actually decline year over year. But robberies and assaults are up big time. Now, remember, these are not just statistics. They are people's lives. Okay, and uh, there's also uh, a commentator, John Avlon, who, by the way, once was a speechwriter for Rudy Giuliani when he was mayor of New York. John Avlon uh, talks about 
far-left Democrats who would prefer to just ignore the public safety crisis. When the state legislature finally acted on criminal justice this summer, they decided to focus on semantics instead of solutions, officially replacing the term inmate with incarcerated person in state laws. Seriously, that's what they did. Now, sometimes we forget that public safety is a fundamental civil right, and it's often lower-income neighborhoods that suffer the most from high crime, while wealthier neighborhoods stay relatively safe. In fact, black and Hispanic Democrats are more likely than white Democrats to support increased spending on local police. That's according to a Pew survey from late last year. Look, politicizing crime seeks to gain from other people's pain. But trying to ignore crime for ideological reasons is both callous and clueless. And it's sure to promote a political backlash. Callous and clueless. Uh, who are they ignoring? They're ignoring people like a store owner in Philadelphia who said this to local news. Uh, listen, this is clip 10. Vincent Emanuel says his 7-Eleven store in South Philadelphia is in real trouble. And the reason is shoplifting. There's a 911 call goes out of the store almost like every day from the store. He even gave us videos of recent incidents. In the most recent case, we see a large group of teens come in at once, take items, then walk out. And another one, we see someone putting items right into their bag. They're coming with bags. They're filling it up and walking right out. Who would need 24 cans of Red Bull? Not far from his shop, Mohamed Fridis of Mizu Boutique, also in South Philadelphia, says more of the same. For the past uh, four to three months, it's been uh, constantly uh, break-ins, attempted break-ins. He, too, gave a security video of thieves who recently smashed out his front windows and then ransacked his store for the next 25 minutes. Almost everything was taken. Merchandise about 47000 to 50000 roughly, and store damages over seven to $8,000. They both feel as if Philadelphia law enforcement has taken a soft stance on the matter. If this keeps going on. I think I'm, uh, this, yeah, I don't think I'll be open. And Emanuel points to a policy implemented by District Attorney Larry Krasner back in 2018 to charge shoplifting as summary offenses unless the case exceeds $500 or the suspect has a long history of theft convictions. They need to take a little bit more tougher stand on this stuff. Oh, and by the way, it's not just Philadelphia. This has been going on in Los Angeles, which is why they're planning to uh, dump the DA in L.A. with a recall, just as they did within San Francisco. It is a left-wing disease and a blindness, uh, paying no attention to, well, what a New Yorker called into C-SPAN to talk about. Listen, clip nine. As a New Yorker, um, for the most part, pertaining to law and order and issues of the country nationally, I believe the Republicans are better. Why? As a New Yorker that lived in New York from uh, Mayor Koch through Mayor Bloomberg, Democrats, and particularly these days, in all honesty, as a black man telling the truth, Democratic mayors that's black, whether they're male or female, Democratic um, police commissioners, there's black male or female Democratic cities, they're run into the ground. The black mayors, the black police commissioners, be they male or female, they don't really put their hammer down on crime. They're real soft on crime, as opposed to the Republicans, who, of course, are hard on crime, and they're way more supportive of the police, as opposed to the Democrats, more supportive of the victims of police brutality. So, in my opinion, 
nationally, city by city, crime-wise. You might want uh, Republicans as your mayors, as your police commissioners, whether they're white or black, or black, whether they're male or female, because they're more inclined to take crime more seriously and be more inclined to protect and support the victims of crime. And that, it, it seems to me, speaks for a lot of people all across the country. And uh, the idea that we're going to let things go, and yes, that includes things like homeless encampments everywhere, uh, public drug use, uh, the, the country falling apart, the uh, Republican Party can have a total rejuvenation and new burst of energy based on the idea of law and order. And rather than being preoccupied with various political crimes uh, that uh, we accuse them of and they accuse us of, at, at talking about crime that actually hits people where they live seems particularly important. Considering that four years ago in the state of Washington, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow, there was a voter-approved gun law uh, mandating background checks for owners of pistols and semi-automatic rifles. Guess what? State officials haven't even started that, and they have no plans to do so. Why not? We will talk about that. Uh, we'll also talk about with Washington Policy Center on the teacher strike and how to avoid going through this process every year and all the time. We'll also talk about some new campaign ads across the country, the good, the bad, and the crazy, and what was in Vladimir Putin's mind and culture that led to his great miscalculation. That and more on The Medved Show. <laughs> 